Hi everyone, welcome back to the eighth day. I'm your host, Kara, and now that we have gotten through the beast that was chapter six, we're moving on to the final chapter of this book. In fact, chapter seven, which is not going to be an entire hour long. <laughs> Um, it's been a long week. I'm ready to get to the end of it, and I'm ready to get to the end of this book. So, you know what? Let's just jump right in. Chapter 7. The People of the New Covenant and Our Land, Lord. What is left at the end of all things? Did Jesus die for plants? No. Did Jesus die for animals? No. Jesus died for people, and when, it, and when it is all said and done, the only thing that will be left is the church. Sermon heard in Wheaton, Illinois, July 2016. Both church history and our own believing hearts tell us that there was something amazing about the laser-like focus of the early evangelical movement. John and Charles Wesley, George Whitefield, and Jonathan Edwards were the founding fathers of the cross-pollinating, revivalistic, and evangelistic atmosphere of Britain and North America in the 1730s, also known as Great Awakening. Thousands of churchgoers were reawakened in their faith. Thousands more were converted for the first time. The Methodist Episcopal Church of the United States, birthed through the preaching of the Wesleys and Francis Asbury, went viral by the turn of the century, claiming four million adherents at its zenith. Foundational to this evangelical revival was the different twist that Riley Case speaks of, the belief that the primary task of the church was to preach the gospel such that humanity might be re reconciled with God through the work of the Holy Spirit, the conversion of souls. When Methodism jumped to America after the Revolutionary War, Wesley's admonition, you have nothing to do but save souls, was understood by the first American Methodist to mean that salvation from the consequences of sin is available by faith in the blood of Jesus through, through the new birth. And with the new birth comes a changed life through the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a different twist from what anyone else in America had been preaching up to that point, and it took the new nation by storm. As for the Methodist, while only 10% of Americans claimed church membership after the Revolutionary War, by 1850 the percentage was nearly 40%, and of that 40%, Methodist would claim a full one-third. But as I stated in the introduction, somehow or another this Wally Good and Orthodox em emphasis on the conversion of souls also resulted in the church's sense that converting souls is the only task of the Christian. 
and therefore any other task, such as environmental stewardship, is a distraction from the most essential aspect of our calling. There are many divergent trails of church history and theology that we could pursue at this point to decipher where that idea came from. Some would blame it on the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, a form of Greek dualistic thought, which supposedly infiltrated the New Testament to teach us that all matter is evil, and only the non-material spirit realm is good and worthy of our investment. Some would blame it on, on dispensational premillennialism, which holds that the eschaton will be inaugurated by a sudden and cataclysmic event bringing about the annihilation of the created order, a sharp break from conditions as we now find them. Some would blame it on the great liberal fundamentalist divide in the 1920s, which left social concerns to the liberals and the conversion of souls to the fundamentalist. Others, such as Lynn White, a 20th century American medieval historian, blame our current environmental crisis squarely on the Judeo-Christian ethic, which supposedly posits a, a dichotomy between people and nature, uh, I know I'm, I'm not pronouncing that right, and I know the right way to pronounce it, but it's not coming to me. Um, a dichotomy, sorry, between people and nature in which man and nature are two things, and man is master, and therefore, whereas the exploitation of people would be ethically evil, the exploitation of creation was right and good. This alleged biblical perspective has frequently been set in contrast to the supposed more eco-friendly views of other religions, leaving Christianity a villain on the world environmental stage. The charge is that the Bible desacralized nature by eliminating polytheism and animism, subjugated the created order by giving it to humanity to rule, and degraded it by the separation of spirit and matter. According to White, the Judeo-Christian tradition in the Western world is the most anthropocentric religion the world has seen. All of these avenues could be pursued with benefit, but as the purpose of this book is a biblical theology of humanity's responsibility toward the garden, and I believe we've already demonstrated that the that the Old Testament is deeply committed to the responsible stewardship of land and creature, let's turn to the New Testament. We will start by examining the New Testament passages that seem to say that the created order will be annihilated at the second coming of Christ, passages that seem to infer that it is right and good to use natural resources as aggressively as possible to pursue the true telos, which in Greek means the last part of a process, of the New Covenant. There are several New Testament passages that are often cited as proof that God's ultimate plan is to dispose of the current planet. The first of these is to um, Second Peter, I believe is how you're supposed to say it, Chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A second passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. A third passage is Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 14 and verse 17. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? A final passage is Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. How are we to read these passages? Are the heavens and the earth, the waters above and the waters below, the sea and the dry land with all their flora and fauna, truly to be obliterated at the end of the age? Is God's ultimate plan to destroy the garden that he commanded both Adam and Israel to tend and protect? Let's first attend to a concept that lies behind all of these passages. The Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord, literally the Day of Yahweh, is a concept that reaches back to the very beginning of the biblical narrative. Meredith J. Klein the great reformed biblical theologian identifies the first occurrence of the day of Yahweh in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 when the creator enters the garden in the spirit of the day and the thunderous sound of his entry drives Adam and Eve into hiding. Although often translated similarly to the NLT uh, it doesn't say what that stands for, sorry. Um, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. This passage is more likely a reference to the first instance of divine judgment on our planet. Judgment is delivered first to the serpent for his deception, then to the woman for her foolishness, and then to the man for his treason. But as, a, but as is always the case, the day of Yahweh also brings mercy and hope. And I will put enmity, 
or hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, the woman's seed, will bruise you on the head, but you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There is an image that I believe perfectly illustrates the moment rehearsed above. It was drawn by Sister Grace Remington, Order of Sister... Cistercians of the Strict Observance from the Sisters of the Mississippi Abbey in Dubuque, Iowa. Hey, Iowa! I'm from there. <laughs> the image offers us Eve and Mary at the same age. One is shamed and grieving with a serpent wrapped around her leg. The other is pregnant and hopeful with a hand of comfort on her sister's shoulder. One holds a bitten apple. The other has her bare foot put squarely placed on the head of a dying snake. Both have fixed their gaze on the child to come. I love this image. Partly because it is beautiful, but partly because in many ways it captures the nature of the day. The day of Yahweh is indeed a day of judgment. On this day, injustice, abuse, and our seemingly unending ambition to destroy ourselves will be confronted and eradicated. But it is also the day of mercy in which God's original intent for this planet, as defined in that perfect first week of creation, is resurrected. The day of Yahweh is the day when the Creator steps back into our dimension and says, Enough. It is the day when death dies. The prisoner is freed, the oppressed is delivered, and the oppressor gets his due. This is the telos of both the Old and New Testaments. Predictably, a survey of the biblical text demonstrates that the day of Yahweh is a regular theme in Old Testament prophecy. This day of judgment and mercy is always attended by terrifying signs in the earth and sky, solar eclipses and earthquakes, sounds of thunder and rushing waters, and a huge heavenly yet earthly army whose task is to bring judgment on all who have colluded against the rule of God. Isaiah chapter 13 verses 2 through 13 is a classic example. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hands that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors. According to my anger, my proud and majestic ones, a sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of tens of thousands of people, the noise of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. Yahweh of hosts is mustering a host for battle. Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate the wicked from it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shine its light. 
Thus I will punish the world for its cruelty, and the evil ones for their crimes. I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and I will bring down the contempt of the ruthless. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and make the earth quake from its foundations, at the fury of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his burning anger. In layman's terms, God shows up, in person, to do battle with those who have defiled his inheritance and abused his people. The slaughter will be terrible. The earth and heavens will tremble. But in this great and terrible day, the systemic evil that permeates our fallen planet will be purged, such that those crushed under the iron fist of injustice will at last know liberation, peace, and prosperity. The Prince of Peace is coming, and his ultimate goal is the restoration of the perfect world of Genesis 1. A civilization without greed, malice, or envy, progress without pollution, expansion without extinction. Can you imagine it? A world in which Adam and Eve's ever-expanding fa family would be provided the guidance they needed to explore and develop their world, such that the success of the strong did not involve the deprivation of the weak. Here, government would be wise and just and kind, resources plentiful, war unnecessary, achievements unlimited, and beauty and balance everywhere. Thus, the day of Yahweh may be found in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 and 9, Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 10, Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 10, chapter 13, verse 5, and chapter 30, verse 3, Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 35, Joel chapter 1, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 1, um, and 11, and chapter 3, verse 4 and 14, Amos chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, Obadiah chapter 15, Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 7 and 14, and Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 5, to name about a few <laughs> of the Old Testament passages. But the day of Yahweh may also be found in the, in the New Testament. Here it is also known as the parousia, Greek to mean arrival, advent, or appearance. Or in Christian circles, the second coming. Why is the day of Yahweh in both Testaments? Because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the plan that first set Eden in motion has not changed. The goal has always been God's people living in God's place with full access to his presence. And so in the New Testament, we read that God the Son will, be, will return as the captain of Yahweh's host and bring with him the deliverance and judgment promised on that glorious but fearful day. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Acts chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, and Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. When we understand that the day of Yahweh is the parousia of the new covenant and return to 2 Peter and 2 Thessalonians, we return with the lexicon native to the biblical authors. These New Testament writers are speaking in the same idiom as their prophetic forefathers, and they are speaking of an event that any first century Jew would easily have recognized, the day of Yahweh. Paul makes this explicit in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-3 through 3, and verses 7-8. through 8. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So we see that the imagery of earth, of fire and earthquake, the roar of thunder and heavenly disturbances are common to passages involving the day of Yahweh. And this language is intended to communicate judgment, not necessarily annihilation. It is also important to understand that this imagery emerges from a genre known as apocalyptic literature, a subcategory of prophetic speech meaning unveiling or revelation that depicts the end of the world and the inauguration of the kingdom of God in images that are fantastic and sometimes bizarre. If you've ever read the entirety of Revelation, I think you can get where she, what, um, what the author's talking about. This literature is known for its symbolism, mythic imagery, special use of numbers, and periodization of history. Biblical books that are apocalyptic in nature include Daniel in the Old Testament and the New Testament, sorry, Daniel in the Old Testament and the New Testament book of Revelation. As Douglas Moo states, the visions we encounter in these books force us to ask if the prophet is straightforwardly describing the conditions of the new world, or is he using a series of metaphors to describe a state of affairs that have no direct analog to our experience in this world. Although the continuity between this world and the one to come is not clear to any of us, Mu and a host of New Testament scholars would side with the latter, that these images and metaphors are part of a stock typology for describing the great judgment at the end of the age. In other words, this apocalyptic language does not communicate the complete annihilation of the physical world. Why? 
because such a conclusion violates the great arc of redemptive history, because the imagery is intended to be symbolic, because the prior judgments rehearsed in the Old Testament do not communicate planetary annihilation, and there are so many other passages in the Old Testament that speak of the restoration and fruitification of our fallen planet as a sign of the return of the king. Because even in the great flood of Noah, designed to cleanse the world of evil, which Matthew chapter 24 verse 37 utilizes as a direct analog for the second coming of the Christ, God preserved the good planet he had made, along with its flora and fauna. And more importantly, because Paul said so. <laughs> In the midst of his famous treatment of the inheritance of the saints in Romans 8, we catch a glimpse of Paul's understanding of the fate of our planet. And rather than in speaking of terms of obliteration, he speaks in terms of resurrection. Paul is probably writing his letter to the Romans from Corinth. Corinth. He is about to depart for Jerusalem but he is heavy-hearted for the converts in Rome who are struggling with their newfound faith. The question's at hand. Why do we need a new covenant? Who qualifies for membership? Why couldn't the old covenant save us? And more importantly, if the kingdom has come, why are we still poor and persecuted and suffering? And so Paul speaks. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the ancient, anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, i.e. Fr frustration, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eager, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. This passage is a poignant representation of the great arc of, redempti of redemptive history. I use it often in my teaching to help my students see that the story of redemption doesn't start in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, or even in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, but starts in the beginning. Here Eden's role as the blueprint of God's ideal plan, a plan that has been torn asunder by the rebellion of Adam, is clear. And the fact that all of redemption's history is leading to the restoration of that perfect plan is clear as well. Throughout the book, Paul reflects on the impact of sin on the individual, the community, and the race. 
In this passage, he reflects on its impact on the cosmos, and he reminds his audience that all creation has suffered because of humanity's rebellion. As a result, all of creation is anxiously awaiting the revealing of the heirs of God. Why does creation wait? Because creation itself has been subjected to frustration. The Greek in this passage suggests that creation has been unable to attain the purpose for which it was created. Why? Because the Adam, the cultivatable soil, was subjected to ineffectiveness because of the rebellion of Adam. God's chosen steward failed in his appointed task, and so the creation over which he had authority was trapped within the self-defeating cycle of humanity's rebellion as well. Creation experiences the same bondage of decay as does the human race, and just like the heirs of the kingdom, creation awaits its deliverance. So how will freedom come to both the cosmos and the children of Adam? Paul abbreviates his answer here, but does so with heavily loaded language. Paul elaborates in his discourse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 42 through 58. With the return of the last Adam, the children of the first Adam will be born again into that which is, in, into that which is imperishable. In Romans, this is the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As Romans chapter 8 verse 23 states, the moment of consummation is our adoption as heirs, which is the redemption of our bodies. The glory of the children of God is that moment when our commitment to Christ in this present age what New Testament scholars call the already, is brought to its fulfillment, actualized, by the resurrection of our fallen and broken bodies into a quality of life that is both eternal and able to endure the same dimension as deity, the not yet. In other words, the great moment of victory is the moment of resurrection. Death is defeated, the curse is repealed, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are finally reconciled with their God and their first home. It is at this moment that the believer's salvation is complete. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21. Now look what Paul does in Romans 8. He juxtaposes the resurrection of humanity with the resurrection of creation. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what many would argue is Paul's theological magnum opus, the apostle argues that the great moment of victory that the believer lives for is the same moment the creation, ancient, creation anxiously awaits. When death is defeated and the curse eradicated, the cosmos will also be born again, liberated and healed, freed at last from the chaos of humanity's rebellion. When we read this passage in class, 
It is often the first time my students realize that the end of the go- that the end goal of the gospel is not simply personal fire insurance. They are usually a bit stunned and always totally jazzed to find out that their personal story of salvation is actually only one small part of a panoramic master plan to restore all of creation through the work of the Christ. In the words of Douglas Moo, if creation had suffered, has suffered the consequences of human sin, it will also enjoy the fruits of human deliverance. When believers are glorified, creation's bondage to decay will be ended, and it will participate in the freedom that belongs to the glory for which Christians are destined. Nature, Paul affirms, has a future within the plan of God. It is destined not simply for destruction, but for transformation. The book of Revelation offers an additional glimpse of the master plan. Here what Christians name heaven is identified as a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Chapter, excuse me, Revelations chapter 21 verses 1 through 2. John describes heaven with all the past of the past beauties of Jerusalem, purified and amplified until we are gazing at a city that sparkles like jasper, as clear as crystal. Revelations chapter 21 verse 11, with gates made of pearls, guarded by angels, perfectly square, as was the holy of holies, and made of pure gold. Revelation chapter 21 verse 18. The gates never close because there is no danger. Revelation chapter 21 verse 25. There is no need of sun or moon or lamps because the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. Revelation chapter 21 verse 23. In this place, the cosmic river of Eden is free to flow from the, fr- from the throne. <laughs> Of the rightful king, Revelations chapter 22, verse 1, and also see Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. And Eden's tree of life has multiplied such that it lines the central street of the city. Revelations chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bond servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelations chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. As I discuss at length in the Epic of Eden, The iconography John deploys makes it clear that unlike the disembodied existence most Christians envision heaven to be, an existence in which we are destined to float around the the heavens for all eternity playing harps among the clouds, heaven is in reality Eden restored. 
by describing heaven with Eden's sacred river and tree of life. The New Testament writers are intentionally forging connections for their readers. They are leaving us theological breadcrumbs to lead our minds back to Eden. The books of Romans and Revelation are telling us that just as our bodies will be raised as living flesh and blood, our heaven will need to accommodate such a corporeal identity. Thus, although missed by too many readers, the New Testament is teaching us that heaven is this very earth resurrected, healed of its scars and washed clean of its diseases. As Gregory Beale states, it is an identifiable counterpart to the old cosmos and a renewal of it, just as the body will be raised without losing its former identity. And although it is true that the continuity between this world and the next is difficult to define, the fact that Paul dares to associate the final destiny of this planet with the ultimate expression of a believer's identity as the redeemed heir of God, i.e. the resurrection of the body, speaks volumes regarding the intrinsic value that God places on this planet. All said, although it is true that the audience of the New Testament is more urban than that of the Old Testament, and as a result, we hear far less about agriculture and pastoralism than we do in the old. And although the theocracy of the nation of Israel is no longer functioning in first century Roman occupied Judea, and therefore federal law is no longer God's law. And although the corpus of the New Testament has a nearly singular focus to make plain the character of the new Adam, and therefore offers us less in the way of land tenor and creature care. This inquiry makes it clear that the Old Testament continues, excuse me, that the New Testament <laughs> continues to embrace and reiterate the message of the old. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Colossians chapter 1 verses 16. In other words, in the New Testament, the garden and the widow and the orphan and the creature still belong to God. God still intends that the resources of this planet be utilized for his purposes. And according to the Apostle John and God the Revelator, God's most central purpose for his garden is to redeem it. Discussion questions. Would you concur that the church's only mission is the conversion of souls? Do you believe the church is also responsible for charity and service toward the widow and the orphan, even the unsaved widow and orphan? Do you think the New Testament would agree with the Old Testament as regards sustainable use of the land and humane treatment of livestock. Where do you think the assumption that it is ethically appropriate to use the Earth's resources as aggressively as possible to accomplish what really matters, i.e. the conversion of souls, has come from? Having read this chapter, would you identify environmental stewardship 
as peripheral or alien to the theological concerns of the Bible. All right. That just leaves tomorrow. We're going to jump into the conclusion as well as some resources the author provides for those of us who really want to work on environmental stewardship and helping make environmental stewardship a main focus um, in our local churches and just as a part of Christianity. I'm really looking forward to sharing all of that with you. So um, stay tuned and it will be coming sometime tomorrow. So have a good night, guys. Talk to you then. Bye.